Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SCC. Joining me this episode after a couple weeks off is co-host Will Miles from his site, readandreaction.com. You can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSCC. Will, I hope you enjoyed the, the, the time off uh, from a couple weeks here off of Gators Breakdown and, and the 4th of July. I'm definitely glad to have you back. Thanks, man. I, I told you off air that my re- standard response has been it was a good 4th of July because I remembered all four days. So, um, <laughs> so better than last year. <laughs> all right. And also joining us is uh, Stefan Floyd, but you probably know him best on Twitter as Red Top Dread Top. Uh, he saw what uh, Will and I and what this episode was about when I posted it yesterday. And, uh, we, you know, we're, we'll take a look at where the Gators need to improve from last season. And Stefan sent Will and I some stuff behind the scenes of one of the topics and uh, that I'm going to hit on pretty hard. So I decided to bring on uh, his, his uh, him and his great work to uh, help us break it all down right here on Gators Breakdown. Stefan, welcome to the show. Uh, so, uh, you know, just a quick background, where you're from, and how did you become a ga- uh, fan of the Gators? Well, I'm originally from Fort Myers, Florida. Um, I live in Birmingham, Alabama now, but location doesn't change who I'm a fan of, uh, as Will can attest to. Uh, doesn't matter where we are, Gator Nation, man, bleed orange and blue. Um, still, man, just a Gator, man, that's just me. You know, ready for SEC Media Day, that'll be up here in, what, next week, two weeks from now? Yeah. So, yeah, man, just ready. All orange and blue, man, ready for this. Yeah, I know you and I talk behind the scenes as well. well I will be busy as uh, busy as I can be next week at SEC Media Days, but we're definitely going to try and meet up and uh, you know get a get a drink or get some food or something. But uh, yeah, one week from today, I'll be hitting uh, Gators Breakdown. Will be at SEC Media Days, and uh, we'll have some we'll have some good stuff there. But ho- hopefully, we'll meet up with you. Yeah, man, let's do that. All right, then here we go. Remember, you can find Gators Breakdown on newsforjacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes as well as articles from the News 4 Jack Sports team. Catch Gators Breakdown on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, and Spotify. When using those services, please share, rate, and review the show. And on social media, follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. And a special announcement, I put it out on Twitter over the weekend. August 17th, kickoff party here in Jacksonville at the Red Gill Bistro. Gators Breakdown listener James Carlin giving us the hookup on a great location here in Jacksonville. August 17th, week before Florida and Miami kick off the season, free admission. Uh, we'll have to pay for food and drinks. I uh, put out an RSVP on Twitter, but if you 
don't have Twitter, reach out to me somehow, uh, comments on YouTube, uh, GatorsBreakdown at gmail.com. That's an email as well. You can send there if you uh, are interested uh, in coming to the uh, August 17th kickoff party here in Jacksonville. All right, so let's get uh, while we're here on Gators Breakdown. Gators have some areas to improve on to have an even more successful 2019 season coming off a 10-win 2018 campaign. Uh, I'm going to start with the Gators having to get off to better starts. Uh, you guys know that's been a big topic for me uh, going dating, uh, dating back to last season. Overall, only 67 points in the first quarter of games last season. 44 of those points were versus Charleston Southern, Colorado State, and Idaho. Uh, now, that was counting offense and defense. There were 28 points scored versus Idaho in the first quarter. 21 of those 28 points come from the offense. The Gators scored 14 points versus Tennessee in the first quarter, aided by some great field position, of course. The reason I bring that game up is – the Gators did not score a single touchdown in the first quarter versus the FBS opponent after the Tennessee game. Run it down here. Versus Mississippi State, zero. LSU, zero. Vandy, zero. Georgia, zero. Four straight games with no points in the first quarter for the Gators. Three versus Missouri, none versus South Carolina, three versus FSU, and three versus Michigan. So after the Tennessee game, Eight games versus FBS opponents and nine points in the first quarter. Add in, going even before that, zero points versus Kentucky in the first quarter as well. For the season, that averaged out to be about five points in the first quarter for the Gators in the season. Uh, but it did get better. As I mentioned, Florida's first quarter scoring 67 points on the season. Second quarter scoring 170. So about a 13-point average uh, in the second quarter uh, on the season. Stefan. Reason I was bringing you on, uh, you, uh, you, you, you followed this up pretty good. You know, you had no idea this was going to be one of the uh, the topics I was going to hit on for an area of improvement. Uh, and you, uh, you, you found some pretty good stats in comparing Mullen and and uh, you know his days at Mississippi State and what Mississippi State and Florida did last year. Yeah, man, I was um watching some of the older games from this past season over the weekend and just was noticing or just reminding myself that. Uh, we had a lot of slow starts, like even in games against Florida State and Michigan where we were dropping 40 points on people, we still weren't scoring to start the game off. So it just made me want to go look and see, uh, I guess, the actual numbers behind that. And uh, I know one of the actual good things about Mac was that we really were happy that he would start off the games with a good first drive and then we just wouldn't do anything on offense anymore. So I just wanted to see um, first quarter scoring just over this past season compared to Mac seasons and how Mullen did when he was at Mississippi State. Um, and what I looked at, we, we scored, we averaged 2.6 points per game in the first quarter this past season. Uh, and Mac in his first year averaged 6.5, uh, 5.1 in his second year. And of course, we had that year with the credit card nine where he, he also averaged 2.6. Um, and I went to look at, you know, was that just a blip on the radar? Was that just due to Dan Mullen in his first year in the system being in Gainesville as the head coach? So I wanted to go look and see what he did at Mississippi State. Um, and I did the same years, the same three years that Mac was in Gainesville. Uh, and Mullen averaged 7.2 in the first quarter. 5.6 and 5.9 um, in those three years, respectively. So I'm hoping that it was just a blip on the radar, that 2.6. I'm hoping it was just a new system thing and 
that this coming up year we'll be able to get back to that six, seven points uh, in the first quarter of a game. We get a touchdown and stop just going eight games in a row with no points. Yeah, Will, I, you know, you look at the three losses last year. I did mention Kentucky. There was no points there. Uh, of course, the Georgia, no points there. There was three versus Missouri, but – you know, that heck, we all remember going back to the Georgia game, the flea flicker, Van Jefferson's wide open down the field. He, Felipe Franks hits that. Maybe it's a different game. Maybe, maybe a touchdown there, you know, puts more pressure on Georgia and it's a closer game in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, I don't know how necessarily it translates. And like Stefan says, hopefully it gets better. Mullins history says it will. Maybe some more familiarity, Felipe Franks in the offense, all the returning starters that, that, that come back besides the offensive line. Maybe there's a uh, maybe there's an improvement here. Yeah, I think part of it also is you got to look at where did Florida actually improve last year. So Florida got a lot lot better when they were running the ball. So I think they were like 13th in the FBS and yards per yards per attempt when they were running the ball when they were sort of in the mid 50s in 2017. And so when you're running the ball that well, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to wear down the defense. So it shouldn't really be a shock to us that in the third and the fourth quarter uh, against teams where Florida should have quite honestly been the physically superior team against teams like Vanderbilt, against teams like South Carolina, especially as worn down as South Carolina was on the backside of that defense, that they were able to stage these comebacks. But obviously it's concerning when you're down by three touchdowns to Vandy or when you're down, you know, what was it, 35 to 14 or something to, to South Carolina. Like you can't rely on those sorts of comebacks, um, you know, especially once you're the hunted. I mean, last year you know, there were a couple of people who were probably, you know, Kentucky was probably circling Florida on the schedule. But, you know, not everybody was was circling the Gators. And I think coming into 2019, people are going to be circling the Gators and you're going to have to hit those throws. And I mean, the reality is, is that Frank's downfield and and particularly especially in the losses was not real accurate down the field he's going to have to be more accurate this year um and and the offense last year really did rely on explosive plays there were a bunch of long runs by p ryan and pierce um the one that comes to mind is the one that p ryan popped against florida state that sort of really sort of started the engines on offense there but um you know the other thing is is that mullen I think in some respects, especially early on in the year, had to protect Franks. And so he was trying to figure out what the defense was doing early on in the game. And in order to do that, you, you call conservative, you, you have a game plan that's conservative. I think towards the end of the year, the thing that would be a little bit concerning is that against Michigan, against Florida State, the starts were still kind of slow. And that's where, you know, we noted changes in Franks completion percentage and the way he was playing and the confidence and running the ball, but it didn't necessarily translate into more points early in the game. So certainly that's something we'll want to look for early against Miami. But again, I think when you're sort of protecting your offensive line or protecting your quarterback, you're going to come out maybe a little bit more conservatively against, you know, against opponents who are, who are skilled. And so, you know, you look at Charleston Southern or you look at Colorado state, you say, eh, um, but, you know, against Kentucky, they were chucking the ball all over the place. So, um, but again, some of that was because they fell behind early. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's an area to focus. I think it's an area to pay attention to. I wouldn't necessarily say that's the key area that I'm going to be looking for in terms of improvement this year. Yeah, I think it's if they do improve there, what I think it means is that it may be a better overall offense. I like because I, I don't necessarily think if they don't get it done, like we brought up the FSU and the Michigan games, it doesn't mean they won't put 40 points on the board, 
But if you do get off to a faster start, maybe you don't put as much pressure on your defense. Say the Missouri game, go back, they you know, don't really score a whole lot of points in early on. You fall behind early. You're kind of panicking, and I'll, I'll go into that too. You know, Mullen even kind of admitted that uh, in the Kentucky game last year. They fell behind and kind of maybe panicked and put the game in Felipe Frank's hands a little bit more. Yeah, it's one area I definitely want to see improvement just because I think it's kind of a chain reaction to make the whole game easier the rest of the way. Right. If we can get uh, 14, 17 in the first half, as opposed to having to come out and where we have to score 30 in the second half, um, I think that'll make things a lot easier uh, game plan wise, the strategy, just everything. As far as milking the clock in the second half, we can go into the second half with a lead as opposed to trying to play catch up. Um, to Will's point, I, I don't think that because when I was looking at it, I also wanted to look at some of the superpowers, if you will, uh, of the of college football and see where they ranked in it. And there wasn't necessarily every year that Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State were at the top in first quarter scoring either. Obviously, this past year with Alabama scoring 50 in the first half, <laughs> that was a little different. But um, typically, that's they weren't really up there super high either. So there's not necessarily a direct correlation between first quarter scoring and winning. But I do think if we can go ahead and just alleviate that problem, uh, that'll help make just the whole game a little bit easier to to uh, for us to, to to focus on us to get a win, get a W. Well, and I, I think I think one of the things we need to look at is also when you look at the first half, Florida scored 13 and a half points, at least against FBS opponents and only gave up 11.1. So going into the half, Florida was still ahead. And in, in some circumstances, I mean, again, the Mississippi State game is the one that comes to mind. Right. Florida, Florida was down at the half, but they were managing that game in order to be able to take over in the second half. And, you know, in the first, the first half, you were sort of like, Yee. and especially when they hit the guy streaking, when Mississippi State hit the guy streaking down the middle of the field and he dropped the ball, you're like, ooh, this could get out of hand. But from well, that, that the, point on, Florida yeah, that, really kind of physically dominated the game. Yeah, and that was the point of FSU and Michigan as well. Like, even though they w weren't necessarily putting the ball in the end zone early on, you felt that Florida was kind of, you know, really in good shape in, in both of those games. And, well, I think you and I were texting during the uh, during the Peach Bowl. It was like, man, this looks eerily similar to, to the FSU games because Florida was driving. They were getting in scoring position, but had to settle for field goals. Uh, so, yeah, you know, first quarter scoring, maybe even first half scoring, uh, Florida puts themselves in good shape, uh, you know, to get a, you know, especially as I, I go back to that Georgia game a little bit. You never know what happens if you get up uh, with, with that flea flicker and talking about maybe, you know, catering to um, the offense with Felipe Franks and a young offense trying to, you know, maybe cater to, to, to Felipe Franks because maybe trying to figure out what the defense did and maybe being a little conservative. That was one play where we saw the, you know, a bye week. And you get a flea flicker, and not necessarily uh, trying to be conservative versus Georgia, and maybe trying to get a quick one on them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, obviously, you get up seven nothing early. That plays a big role. But I still think when you're playing a physically superior team, I mean, I remember I was at the Alabama game, you know, that John Brantley hit uh, Debose for yeah. a touchdown to open up the game, and everybody in the stands went nuts, and we all thought that was going to be a route, or at least it was going to be close. Yeah. And then Alabama came back with like, you know, 42 unanswered points or something like that. The, the whole stadium was quiet by the end of the third quarter. So, um, yeah, I, I, obviously, you want to hit that play early on, but I still think that, you know, 
really, and I think this sort of goes to the way, like we've talked a lot about points per game, but I think we want what we want to pay attention to is yards per play. And we want to know, are they hitting explosive plays down the field? And maybe they're not converting that into as many points. Maybe they're settling for some field goals early on. But I don't necessarily think that the red zone conversions are critical. I think getting into the red zone a lot is critical. So, you know, I'd be less concerned with the point total and more concerned with are they moving the ball consistently? And I think, you know, there were some games, especially early in the season against Vanderbilt, where, you know, I remember messaging you going, this looks a lot like Max offense right now, <laughs> early on in that Vanderbilt game. Now, obviously, they were able to sort of break out of those funks from time to time. But, you know, you get into that funk early in the game. Um, a couple of times in 2017, Franks would make a mistake and then would sort of go into a shell. Last year, he didn't make a whole lot of mistakes. And so, you know, but some of that is because they were very conservative early on. So uh, it's something to look for. I mean, certainly if you're up 21 nothing at the half, obviously it gives you an advantage. But I think some of that is game plan related, right? That last year they clearly thought their offensive line and their running backs were a strength. They clearly thought being able to throw those those swing screens out to the wide receivers, you know, against Mississippi State especially, was an area of strength. And then, you know, quite honestly, when the defense got turnovers, the offense looked a whole lot better, right? So against Florida State, there were a lot of turnovers. Those turned into points late in the second half. I don't know that the offense, I mean, the offense obviously was able to move the ball and convert those into points, but still, when, you know, Polite comes around the corner and strip sacks Francois, you're already up by two touchdowns, it's easy to take a shot. Same thing against Tennessee, right? It was just a litany of turnovers in that first half that were converted into points, and, and really, Florida was never challenged. So, you know, I, it's a symbiotic thing. I think if the defense gets turnovers and really sets it deep in, in enemy territory, then you're able to take advantage. And for the most part, those key turnovers were occurring in the second half. I think what we can definitely say here is the, there are multiple ways to win games. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I want one with a fast start, but, uh, yeah, I, I'll take a W any way possible. So, you know, we brought up Felipe Franks a little bit. The slow starts can somewhat be contributed to Felipe Franks and the inconsistency in his game uh, in year one under Mullen. It's hard to pin the losses on just Felipe Franks. And I'll get the points, and we'll get the points about the defense later on and where they can also improve. But if Florida is going to take the next step, Franks is going to need to be more consistent, make some plays uh, versus Kentucky, I thought. As I said, you know, Mullen admitted he probably relied on Franks too much in that game. Franks, 17 of 38, 44.7% completion percentage, 232 yards, 6.1 yards per attempt there. And, uh, at the same time, uh, or at that time in the season, I thought 38 attempts were too much. Uh, you know, And what we kind of just identified as Florida's offense as being the, built, built on the run game. You know, in Florida, to me, Florida was never down enough in that game to abandon the run game like they did. Uh, it was just you know, a weird game versus a, a good Kentucky team. Uh, second loss of the season versus Georgia. We all remember the, the, the flea flicker opening that game. Franks ends up 13 to 21, you know, 61.9% completion percentage, but only 105 yards, only five yards per attempt. Uh, had that great throw to take the uh, lead in the third quarter, uh, but that was about it uh, versus Georgia. Then a week later, uh, and one of Frank's, you know, Felipe Frank's worst performance of his career leads to a benching. Nine of twenty-two versus Missouri, forty-point uh, nine percent completion percentage, only eighty-four yards, three-point eight yards per attempt. Of course, we all know turned it on after that. Uh, but you guys were talking behind the scenes, you know, kind of late yesterday and today. Will, I know when we were we had our big episode on Felipe Franks about a month ago, uh, you noticed some things in his game. Uh, and then Stefan kind of you, you opened up Stefan's eyes to something to look forward to in, in film, and he found some more stats of uh, uh, of where Franks was, uh, you know, maybe where uh, one side of the field that he favors in what we teased, uh, you know, about a month ago. 
Yeah, man. It, you know, one of the things I think is in, in wins on, tw- on yards or on attempts of 20 plus yards, Frank's averaged 15.5 yards per attempt. And in losses, it was 4.8. <laughs> and his completion percentage was 47.8%. In losses, it was 15.4%. And so, you know, clearly an area for improvement is going deep, being consistent, going deep. You know, that throw against Georgia, I think, sort of epitomizes it. But there were a bunch of throws against Missouri that if he had hit, could have changed that game. There were some throws against Kentucky that if he had hit, could have changed that game. And really, in the last three games versus the FBS opponents, so South Carolina, Florida State, and Michigan, he averaged 18.9 yards per throw on those 20-plus yard attempts. So, um, you know, there's some hope that he's becoming more consistent and became more consistent as the season went along. But certainly, it, it, it was the losses occurred because there was a deficiency in the quarterback play in those losses and the wins occurred because he played very well in those wins. So I I think sort of, we need to, you know, we've talked a lot this off season about there being more consistency and less highs, less lows with the way Frank's is playing. I think if we see that this year, then Florida's offense is going to improve. Yeah. I know when I was looking at uh, Felipe and his, passing percentage um what caught my eye was just the deep ball first of all um and the stats that I was talking with you guys about earlier today um he was completing well through week 10 was completing 32.5 percent of his passes on 20 yards plus uh and then Will pointed out to me that he also uh is not very good on the left side of the field (laughs) and I looked at that and he's completing 30.2 percent of his passes to the left side of the field so um kind of back to what will was saying earlier just i think that dan mullen is doing a really good job of just managing felipe franks and playing to his strengths so i think um another thing that i looked at when i was looking at those percentages was he's he had 43 attempts to the left side of the field uh 45 in the middle 77 to the right so it's almost as though dan mullen is for the most part trying to design plays to get him to where his strong suits are um, there's no point in throwing it over there to the left if he's not going to complete. If you're completing 30% of the passes over there, then 70% of the time when you call a play for that side of the field, it was a wasted play. So uh, I, I still want him to work on that. I went back and watched the spring game just to see if there were any improvements at all, even though I know it was against a vanilla defense and just kind of a very vanilla game plan and an offensive-friendly game plan. Uh, it looked better, but... Again, you can only take so much from the spring game. Um, I really want to see what he does against Miami, and then we'll kind of go from there for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it also is, you know, the, sometimes he's thrown to the left because of his read, right? So if they're if they're playing something to take advantage of man coverage and he's running and the guys on the left-hand side are running routes to take advantage of man coverage, that's where he's supposed to go based on the way the defense is playing. And so Mullen can protect that in some instances because they can have um, option routes and other things that they do based on what the defense is giving him. But at the end of the day, he's going to have to throw in that direction. He's going to have to throw accurate. Um, particularly when he throws deep, um, you know, you, you get when he's thrown deep, there were a lot of passes that were overthrown going to the left-hand side. Whereas when he goes to the right-hand side, he's able to drop it in. And that was true even two years ago. I mean, the opening play against Michigan, he dropped the ball right into to Hammond, I think on the deep play against Michigan. And we thought, here we go. We got a quarterback who can check it deep. And then the rest of the game was a disaster. But um, you know, the other area I think he can improve is if you go back and look at his, at his performance in sec play. So again, you look at 20 plus yards, his completion percentage was 31%. 
10 to 19 yards, his completion percentage was 34%, and he only averaged 9.7 yards per pass on 20-plus yard attempts. So, again, sort of the same trend that in SEC play, and granted, three of, the, three of those losses were against SEC opponents, but, you know, really when you're looking at a schedule and you're looking at Florida's schedule last year, I mean, you have Florida State and Michigan. Florida State had a down year. Michigan didn't really have all their guys on defense in that bowl game. So the meat of the schedule is the SEC, and, and that's where he was really struggling there. And and so it's not just the deep throws. It's also the intermediate throws. If you look at um, 10 to 19 yards in losses, he had 24% was his completion percentage, and in wins, it was 47%. So not only are we talking about passes where he's going down way down the field, but also sort of in that intermediate range where, to be quite honest, you're going to have to be able to throw the ball to defeat zones, right? I mean, when you get zone coverage, you're going to have to go down between 10 and 19 yards and, and that was something that you could see they had worked on because they started throwing over the middle a lot more, um, sort of some of those in-breaking routes from the right-hand side. And uh, and Franks was able to do that successfully the last few games of the year. All right. Let's switch to the other side of the ball here and, and the defense, rush defense and pass defense here. And rush defense, in the, in, in, you know, if we're looking at areas of improvement, you know, you can definitely look at the three losses uh, when you're looking at that. Uh, Kentucky had 41 attempts. 303 yards, 7.39 average. Georgia, 41 attempts, 189 yards, 4.61 average. Uh, you know, not too bad there. Uh, Missouri, 42 attempts, 221 yards, 5.26 yard average there. So those three games, 41 attempts, 237 yard average given up, 5.8 yards uh, per carry in those three games uh, in wins. 37 attempts, only about four less than the uh, 41 in the losses there, but only giving up about 140 yards a game on the ground uh, in the wins for the Gators there. So um, about 100 yards less given up on the ground in wins, uh, 3.8 yards per carry in wins, two yards less uh, than the losses. So rush defense, you know, for uh, as good as it looked at times last year, you go and look at the three losses uh, for, from the Gators wheel and, uh, Tell you what, uh, that's uh, that, that's where the Gators have got to improve. We know up front uh, Florida's got some issues to figure out, defensive tackle, replacing Ja'Kai Polite, replacing Vashawn Joseph. Uh, but, you know, if Florida, if Florida really wants to uh, kind of turn the tides and the losses last year, you know, you're looking at about 40 attempts at these you know, in, in three losses to Kentucky, Georgia, and Missouri uh, and, and giving up 237 yards on the ground. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there were some issues with Snell in particular that I'm remembering against Kentucky. But, you know, one of the interesting things is last year, so if, if you look at yards per play, Florida improved from 105th against the pass to 40th, and they just improved from 54th against the rush to 52nd. So if you really look at a place where maybe they can make a leap forward by being in the second-year Grantham scheme, I don't necessarily think it's going to be against the pass. They made really good strides last year between where they were to, to where they are now versus the running game didn't really improve very much. Um, just sort of stayed the same as it had the year before. The year before it was kind of a mid-level, mid-level thing. And and the the six years before that, Florida's defense had averaged. If you if you factor out if you eliminate 2017, Florida had averaged a ranking of 17.3 in terms of yards per play. So really a top 20 defense against the run. Went to 54th in 2017 and then just 52nd last year. So if you believe that 2017 was sort of an aberration, well, you know, 2018 sort of headed in the wrong direction still. I think against the run, really being stout up front is a place they're going to have to improve. Yeah, as far as run defense, man, um, I mean, it's pretty much the stuff that you guys already know. Defensive tackle play has to step up, has to get better. 
um, according to football outsiders, we were 70, 70th um, when it comes to run defense. I think another big part of that is just quarterback contained, man. Just our defensive ends getting past the quarterback and just creating lanes for these dual threat quarterbacks or even just remotely mobile quarterbacks just because our defensive tackles are getting no push up front. Um, that's something we definitely got to work on. Uh, Terry Wilson, talking about that Kentucky game, he averaged 10 yards a carry against us, uh, burned us on a, I think it was a second and 16, third and 16, had a really big conversion. I don't know if he had a touchdown on that one, but he had a big conversion on that. And if we just have better QB contained and things like that, man, we can avoid a lot of those problems, a lot of those big plays. If, if that's a second and 16, you force a third and 16, you know what I mean? Or third and 20. If it's third and 16, you force a punt, get an extra possession in our hands. So things like that, we just got to, we really got to work on that. And to the, uh, also to that point, talking about explosive plays, we really got to limit that. Um, we were not, we weren't bad in the red zone as far as red zone defense, but last year, especially we gave up five touchdowns before the Tennessee game out of the red zone, like no red zone touchdowns. Everything was 20 yards plus. Uh, again, that that Kentucky game in particular, they never reached the red zone mm -hmm. on that entire game, never got past the 20 and still beat us. You know what I mean? So that's just explosive plays. We got to stop that. Got to slow that down. Run defense, especially. I know a lot of that had to do with Marco getting hurt. Um, so yeah, they were able to kind of torch our secondary, but we really got to shore that up. Hopefully we can stay healthy and avoid some of those problems this year. Yeah, because to me, two quarterbacks you're going to add to that is Joe Burrow started running more last year as the LSU season went on, so you probably see him maybe run a little bit more too if that continues to be an issue for this Gator defense. And also uh, Kelly Bryant uh, at Missouri, you know he's he's got legs too. So two quarterbacks uh, there, you know. Yes, he faced Burrow last year, but like, as I said, he his legs got used a little, much like Frank's got used as the year went on a little bit more. And also uh, Kelly Bryant there, uh, you know, not necessarily used to it to facing him uh, the transfer from Clemson. Well, and it's interesting that you talk about explosive plays going against Florida. I'd actually say and this is something Florida needs to maintain, maybe not necessarily improve. But last year, Florida was 18th in takeaways in the entire country. The year before, they were 56th. Over the last seven years, they've averaged a ranking of 50th in, in takeaways. So they were able to really sort of generate explosive plays in the defense last year. A lot of that was Ja'Kai Polite coming around the end and stripping the quarterback. I mean, that really sort of shifted the balance in both the Tennessee and the LSU games, having him come around the end and make a strip. And it turned in, you know, stopped LSU's drive when it looked like they were going to go up by 10 or 14 in that first quarter. And then, you know, it really sort of put Florida on the board to start the game against Tennessee. So um, I don't know that that's necessarily an area of improvement. It's certainly something we expected to see with Grantham taking over year one. But, you know, some of those must-champ teams, I mean, you know, there, there were um, – I'm looking at – so in 2013, obviously Florida had a very good year in 2013. They were 92nd in turnovers in the country. They were 14th in 2012 when they played very, very well. They were 115th in 2011 when they were sort of eh. But then they were 4th in 2014, and they were 7-5, and 8-4, and four, something like that. So, um, you know, I look at it and say takeaways don't necessarily correlate to wins and losses, but certainly they correlate to your defense outperforming its sort of yard for play average. And that, that would be my concern with the defense from last year is it, it ranked 37th overall in yards per play, but ranked in the 20s, you know, the low 20s in terms of points per game allowed. So they were sort of outperforming their underlying metrics in terms of the points they were giving up. And I think a lot of that is attributable to turnovers. And so to see improvement from that unit this year is going to require that they still have that same kind of explosiveness and can get those turnovers. Yeah. And I don't know if, I mean, I would assume it's core, you know, it, it can correlate here. 
I don't remember how many turnovers by the opponent there were in the three losses. Kentucky, Georgia, and Missouri, I don't remember a whole lot. But uh, right off the top of my head, you know, that that we we go back to LSU, go back to FSU, and, you know, there were. There, we remember the turnovers in those games, but the three losses, I don't remember it off the top of my head there being that many. There were two. Kentucky had two. Uh, we both had two in that Kentucky game. Yeah. Uh, we had three in the Georgia game. They didn't have right. any. Right. Um, and I don't remember the Missouri. I can't yeah. imagine there was a turnover because I was there and nothing good happened. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, the tailgate was good, Will. The tailgate, <laughs> the, was, good. The tailgate was excellent. But uh, <laughs> that was sort of the highlight of the trip on that one, everybody. <laughs> nothing good inside of the stadium. There we go. <laughs> Uh, let's switch to the Gator secondary right quick. And this comes from College Football News, uh, a site that I, I, I use a lot here. And um, uh, they finished 13th in the nation in pass defense, but uh, got picked clean. This is a quote from them. Picked clean during the rough three-game stretch by Georgia's Jake Fromm, Missouri's Drew Locke, and South Carolina's Jake Bentley. Those three combined to hit over 70% of their passes for an average of 245 yards a game, eight touchdowns, and just one interception. Uh, in that three-game stretch there. Uh, you know, Florida did beat South Carolina, uh, lost to Missouri uh, and, and Georgia. And the other loss last year was Kentucky. Uh, and Kentucky's Terry Wilson hits in uh, – Stefan, kind of going to your point, Terry Wilson, 69% of his throws, two scores. His stats didn't blow you away, but he was efficient in what he was doing. So, you know, I was looking – I went and kind of was digging a little bit deeper here and going back to the three losses uh, last season. Uh, there were only – they only – gave up 213 yards average in those three losses. Kentucky only threw for 151 yards, but I said, but kind of just efficient what they were doing. Uh, but it was the average yards per attempt and completion percentage where the Gators pass defense uh, was hurt. 72.2% of passes were completed in the three losses uh, while throwing uh, for an average, of, uh, while the opponents averaged 8.9 yards per attempt. If that stat had been for the season, Florida have, would have ranked 122nd in the nation for the 8.9 yards per attempt. So that uh, that really opened my eyes in the, in the three losses. That that that's how bad the pass defense was uh, there. To be fair here, Marco Wilson goes down versus Kentucky. C.J. Henderson goes down versus Georgia. So at that time, you're without your top two cornerbacks versus one of the you know best teams in the country. Uh, there you know there's two games to where if you're full staffed on defense, uh, I doubt those numbers are that high, especially the yards per attempt are still that high. But still, it's worth keeping an eye on because safety play is involved there as well. Same cast of characters that are returning there. They're hopefully, you know, Brad Stewart's on the field uh, more this fall at safety. And I also think a lot of that had to do with um, just who it happened against. Georgia and South Carolina in particular uh, were two of the more explosive teams um, in the SEC. I know the record didn't show that with South Carolina, but with Debo Samuel, when he's healthy, they have a pretty explosive offense. Um, I, as you may or may not remember, going into that Georgia game, that was supposed to be a big deal. It was, oh, South Carolina against Georgia. It's going to be a great game. You know what I mean? That was because of Georgia's I – mean, I'm sorry, South Carolina's explosive offense. Uh, so that was kind of status quo for them when they played against us. Not to make any excuses, we definitely have more talent. We should have handled them far easier than we did. But uh, – I do expect our safety play to be better. Um, just second year in the system, you know, more experienced guys. 
Uh, I just had to trust the coaching staff on that. I don't really have any numbers to back that one up. <laughs> I'm just kind of hoping that our coaching staff will get us to the next level on that one. I think I think Will's got us covered there for some numbers on that. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I've been looking at recently, I've been doing some film study and I haven't quite gotten to the point where I can publish it yet. But um, I was looking back at that Missouri game and then I was looking back at the Mississippi State game in terms of the defense. And Grantham pretty much threw the kitchen sink at both of them. The difference was is that when he did something post-snap, Fitzgerald had no clue what to do with the ball. So if he showed zone and then switched into a single high safety look after the snap, Fitzgerald threw it to the wrong guy or, or threw it away or got flushed or held on the ball too long. When he did that against Locke, Locke threw it to the right spot right away. He had clearly been coached, get the ball out. Do not allow the defensive line to get to you. And then eventually they got very duly nonetheless. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily dueling. I think I think a lot of it is, you know, you look at the guys that you highlighted when you were talking about the quarterbacks. You got Bentley, who was a who was a three year starter. You got Locke, who's been starting since he was a freshman. And you got Fromm, who's been starting since he was a true freshman. Guys with three or four years in the system. And there aren't a lot of guys coming up on Florida's schedule this year who fit that description. I mean, Miami, maybe you got Martell. Um, UT Martin, I don't think we have to worry about. Kentucky, you got Wilson. So again, uh, the questions there still exist because of the way he played last year. Just stop the big plays. Just stop the big plays. Yeah. I mean, Tennessee, <laughs> you got Guarantan. Well, so, and, and you wonder whether Grantham's going to play more zone that game, yeah. right? Do you just say, hey, we're going to keep him in front of us because we don't think they can drive all the way down the field. That's not really the way Grantham plays. And so it'll be interesting to see whether he makes some adjustments based on what they saw last year, especially if they're having trouble controlling the quarterback. But you know, Tennessee, you got Guarantano, who's been there forever, but hasn't really been very good. Then you got Towson, you got Auburn, who's going to have a new quarterback. Then you got then you got sort of the the area where I think the the secondary is going to get challenged, where you've got LSU on the road. So you've got Burrow in his second year in the system. Then you got South Carolina with Bentley and then you got Georgia with Fromm. And that's sort of the three where I think you go, okay, like that's maybe where the, the secondary either proves that it's for real or, you know, is going to struggle and, and struggle the same way they did last year in those three games. And then, and then you finish it out with Vanderbilt, Missouri and Florida state. I don't think there's really, I mean, Bryant has experience, but I don't necessarily think that he was explosive in, in any of his stops. So, and, and, he ran the ball quite a bit, but he wasn't necessarily chucking the ball down the field like those three guys. So that's what I would key in on. I'd key in on LSU, South Carolina, and Georgia in terms of looking at the secondary. Look at the yards per play in those games. If they're giving up considerably more than we would, you know, considerably more than they have throughout the year, then I think we can say, okay, there's 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 some issues in the secondary we need to be aware of, especially if we get to a big time bowl game. Um, but you know, with Henderson out there and with Wilson coming back, if he's 100% healthy, certainly him going down. You know, last year was a bad thing, but if he can come back and he can be 100% healthy, being able to have the experience that Trey Dean got last year, I think, is a real benefit this year because he might not have gotten that playing time last year if if Wilson had stayed healthy the whole year. Stefan, anything else on the defense? And do you have one more point on the uh, offense you wanted to get in here? Um, not really. I mean, um, I got. I mean, one point that can probably go to both sides, man, is just penalties. Uh. If we could cut down on that, man, just re and rewatching those games, man, we had a ton of penalties, man. I didn't, I didn't really remember it being that bad as the season was going on. I guess the wins kind of made me forget those. But uh, we finished number twenty-two in the seat in the uh, country in terms of penalty yardage. So if we could just cut down on that, which was also was kind of weird to me because that wasn't typically what Mullen had. Um, I know that's one thing he was supposed to bring. Uh, over from Mississippi State was us cutting down on his penalty yardage. I don't know uh, what it is. It seems like 
at the University of Florida, we're just going to be a penalized school. I mean, uh, it, it doesn't I mean, even the even the best teams under Meyer, we were the most penalized team in the country. <laughs> I, I I say it all the time, man. I I kind of mean it as a joke, but I kind of mean it all seriously. That I think these refs just kind of have it in, like they just kind of uh, they're upset. Spurrier said something to somebody back in the nineties, and they just won't let it go. So they just flag us every chance they get. Man, it's it's all right. We'll we'll get over it. We'll get over it. We still got ten wins with them calling a lot of flags against us. So we'll be all right. It's a, it's a great point about the penalties because coming into last year, one of the things I sort of highlighted as as looking forward to was not seeing the false start penalties that we saw throughout 2017, and that Mullen, you know, in his nine years at Mississippi State, had had teams that really were very disciplined and and typically ranked very well in terms of penalties, and then Florida came out last year and was 125th in penalties per play, <laughs> so damn near dead last at FBS in, in penalties. So, but I, I would say I don't recall a whole lot of just stupid dead yeah. ball penalties. I mean, there were holding penalties. That's when you get physically beat, right? There's pass interference penalties. That's when, again, you get beat and you grab or or whatever. I, I don't recall a ton. And there were a few false start penalties, but I don't recall. it. Was, we didn't have any first and 20s where we had two straight false starts in the red zone or anything like that. Though I bet you if I go back and watch the tape, I'll probably I'm watch it closely. <laughs> I'll probably see him and go, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, with McIlwain gone, I just sort of ignored it. <laughs> What was crazy was most of the uh, false start penalties were on Juwan Taylor out of everybody. Yep, yep. Like it would be on the first round, well, second round, but first round talent, uh, Juwan Taylor. I was just like, how are they calling these on 65 all the time? I thought he's supposed to be good. <laughs> but um, uh, as far as the pass interference, I mean, a lot of those went on uh, trading. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of that could have just been to just just freshmen, you know what I mean? Not there being nervous, just kind of um, just being outplayed a little bit. Not that he's not talented or he won't be capable of anything like that. But just just rookie stuff, you know what I mean? I expect him to be much better this year. I don't really see trading as a major concern, but um, a lot of those were just pass interference on trading, uh, false starts on Juwan Taylor. I started to keep a tally on those over the weekend, but I, I figured I would have better things to do. <laughs> Man, what Gators Breakdown is known for, throwing out numbers and, and analysis. That's just what we did right there. Uh, we'll get into some news and, and updates uh, here, of course, commitments and uh, transfers uh, not stopping. But uh, there we go. I mean, that's that's what we do here at Gators Breakdown. We broke it down with some plenty of numbers, plenty of uh, – uh, a deep dive uh, there, and Will kind of you know uh, you you hit on your article a little bit. Reading reaction, you you uh, released it uh, today, this Monday morning. Uh, anything else you want to uh, add from the article and uh, a little kind of uh, teaser to kind of send people to uh, get some more uh, analysis of uh, where the Gators can improve? Yeah, I mean, really, the biggest thing I looked at was so Florida improved both on offense and defense last year. Offense was a 72, um, 72 ranking improvement. Defense, I think, was like 30. And so the question I was trying to ask is how often do teams, after they have that kind of ranking improvement, how often do they then improve the next year? And the answer is not very often. Um, so it's about 35% on offense and 30% on defense uh, over the last 10 years where teams have had similar ranking increases and have seen the ranking increase or stay the same the next year. So, you know, but at the same time, if Florida's offense and defense improve this year, that's going to put them in contention for the playoff. And, you know, ESPN's FPI had had uh, the Gators percentage about 10% of making the playoff. And it turns out that's about the percentage that we'll see both the offense and the defense improve this year um, considerably. So, 
Um, it, it was interesting that I got to sort of that number from a different from a different direction than, than they had, but sort of got back to the same place. So it, it's it's a, it's a little bit of a shorter read, but it's a, at least for me. But, but, <laughs> but it's an interesting read if people want to go over there and check it out. I'd appreciate it. Yep, readreaction.com to check out Will's latest and kind of extend the talk of uh, improvement uh, for the Gators uh, coming up for the 2019 season. So, guys, a little bit of not breaking news, but it did come out on, on Monday, and we'll, we'll dive into it here. Brian Edwards transferring from University of Florida, junior cornerback. Uh, we all remember, arrested back in May uh, on a misdemeanor battery charge for allegedly choking his girlfriend, uh, suspended from the team indefinitely after the incident, though he remained uh, on campus taking classes Charges dropped for a lack of sufficient evidence back on June 21st. Uh, you know, on the field here, Edwards uh, played sparingly uh, in two seasons for the Gators, not really expected to be a major contributor this year. Uh, two seasons, just seven tackles, four uh, pass breakups, fumble recovery there. Uh, not that big of a hit to the Florida secondary. You know, still was getting reps opposite C.J. Henderson and uh, filling in for recovering Marco Wilson there in the springtime. Uh, it's going to be – you know. It, it is going to be what what it does show it is it's going to be important for CJ McWilliams, Kyrie Elam, Jadon Hill, Chester Kimbro to be able to fill in when and if needed. Uh, going to be interesting to see how this affects them. We just kind of talked about him here on the defense. If this affects how the coaches want to line up trading uh, at the star safety, maybe move him back outside if need be. I think that's the kind of last ditch, last option there uh, for Trey Dean. I think we feel comfortable with Huggins if he had to play star, but it's theme, it, it seems like the staff would like to keep Dean at star. And then, um, you know, it, 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 it may be, they may get to a point where maybe get the five best DBs on the field. Man, that tell you, that whole Dean and Huggins thing, man, just has me all over the place, man. I'm kind of Part of me wants Dean at at the star to have Huggins at the uh, safety spots, and that's what he played last year. But, I mean, I kind of think they're interchangeable. I'm just going to trust the coaching staff on that one. But, um, man, I, I'm really interested to see how we do that, especially with the suspect safety play we had last year. Um, and as far as the uh, Brian Edwards uh, situation, I mean, like like you said, as far as on the field, it's not a huge, huge blow. Um, it can't hurt to have a third-year corner as far as depth goes. But as far as on the field, like really, really playing time type stuff, I think we'll be all right. I think I think the Edwards thing really probably affects things on special teams, right? So who who has to step into that role? Because you need those guys who aren't necessarily on the field continuously as starters, but who fill the depth on the backside in terms of in terms of special teams. And you know the the defense is starting to get a little bit thin back there. I mean, early in the year, right after National Signing Day, I said, hey, they got you know seven blue chip corners they've signed over the last four years and two safeties. But one of those guys was Chauncey Gardner Johnson. He's gone. You got Chris Steele, who's also gone. Amari Bernie, they've moved the linebackers. So really, those those numbers and and the defensive backfield are starting to dwindle a little bit. You get a couple of injuries, and all of a sudden you go, "Huh, it'd be really nice to have that guy who's got three years of experience to to step in." You know, if you got somebody who's young out there who's struggling. So I, I think they'll probably be all right. That is the one area where Florida can can experience some attrition. Um, like I said, they had seven blue chip corners and two blue chip safeties over the last four years who've signed in. So nine blue chip guys in the defensive backfield. I think. So even with some losses, even with some attrition, you say, hey, we'll be all right. Um, but, you know, it, it's it, 
Florida is not going to fill out their 85 scholarships with, with, with four-star guys. So, you know, you, you don't want to lose guys who've been in the system for a long time, but Hey, you know, best of luck to Edwards. Certainly you hope he, he catches on somewhere. Um, you know, you hope that the allegations against him aren't true, but uh, you know, I, I'm certainly sure that that colored the way things were and, and sort of probably also led to him being passed on the depth chart by some people in the, in the, in the spring practice. Yeah, that was kind of a point here too. Uh, with that, this might just be, you know, there's you know so, the thought out there with all the transfers that's going on, you know, from the University of Florida. You know, this may have just been a point where Edwards, it, it was just time for a clean start. You know, with everything that went on off the field uh, through spring practice, he wasn't you know getting the reps there. So maybe just a clean start for him uh, when it's all said and done. And will you get you you brought up Bernie too uh, at linebacker? His his movement there may this be a point where he's does stay at that linebacker position this year unless things get really dire, but maybe next year he, you know, maybe shuffles back to the secondary just because of uh, the, you know, we got got uh, Marco and, and uh, you know, Marco CJ leaving. He's not going to play outside cornerback, but it still may affect, you know, where you put your, your other secondary guys. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think one of the things that Grantham and, and Mullen have preached since they started, since they came to Florida is versatility, having guys who can move in and out. So if if Bernie is able to show that he can excel in coverage, like, you know, really, I mean, I remember a few years ago when we had Marcel Harris, like having him come down into the box, they were able to use the fact that he could tackle like a linebacker, but still could run with with tight ends and, and with slot receivers to really use him in a versatile way. And I think you can see the same thing with a guy like Bernie, right? That if if he can, if he can, if he's just as good a cover guy as he was when he was a few pounds lighter, but he can really lay the wood. I mean, you know, you can use him in ways. Uh, it, it, it means he can be a three down guy, right? So he doesn't have to come off the field when they go into a passing situation or go onto the field when they're, or, you know, basically it allows you to use him every time you need, you know, all, all, mm. all game long, all three downs. You don't have to switch people in and out. And particularly um, in the Tennessee game a couple of years ago, you saw that a lot with Jeremiah moon. Um, having to run him in and out at linebacker um, and, and some other guys And Tennessee really took advantage of it with some of the screens to the running back and, and getting him out in open space and really killed Florida in that game. So, um, you know, yeah, I think so a little bit with Bernie, but I, I think really versatility is what they're looking for. You see that with Huggins a little bit. You see that with Dean a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think we'll probably see that with Elam and, and Kimbrough a little bit as well. Yeah. It, may, it may just come to a point where Bernie just doesn't really have a set position. <laughs> they can move him front. They can move him mid-level or, or back level uh, there and, and get the use out of him uh, there. So let's get uh, back to uh, some big news here. Richie Leonard commits to the Gators. He's the third decommit from Kentucky that has later committed to the Gators. So uh, uh, three stars, a uh, third offensive line commit for the 2020 class. When he committed last Friday, you know, out of Cocoa, Florida, 6'2", 320 pounds, the 728th ranked player, 45th ranked offensive guard in the state of Florida's 102nd ranked player. I uh, mentioned his high school coach played for offensive line coach, John Hevsey. So there's a connection there. Uh, so you know, Gators now with the uh, number nine class on the 24-7 sports composite, fourth in the SEC, and an average of 89.71, which comes out to be uh, a four-star in the 307-ranked uh, player range uh, there. So uh, the third offensive lineman uh, c- commits to the Gators, uh, Stefan. Oh, man, I like what we're doing in the trenches, man, picking up some nice size. Uh, I know these guys aren't rated all that highly, but uh, John Hevesy has a tendency to want to pick up bigger guys and then just let him develop on on, on his own. Um, I think as long as we get these guys, these big, massive guys in to our strength and conditioning program, 
let Nick Savage get his hands on him and then uh, let Hevesy coach him on the field, I think we'll be just fine. Uh, it would be nice to get some blue chip guys, some four-star, five-star guys, you know, some level wood types, but uh, I trust Hevesy. You know, he's got a good, very good track record of doing this. So um, he's picking up massive bodies. They're not three-star little guys, you know what I mean? They're not Miami's offensive line. So, <laughs> um, well, I, I trust Hevesy. Let's do it. I wrote something a couple years ago about looking at top 10 defenses and top 10 offenses and the skill guys on offense did not need to be five-star guys. The skill guys on defense needed to be those high level guys. So if you look at Florida's 20, 2020 recruiting class four of their top five guys are defensive guys. They got two defensive tackles an outside linebacker and a defensive end. And then they got Leonard Manuel wide receiver. So, um, you know, I, again, I think that, um, one of the things that Hevesy's proven is that he can get a lot out of offensive lines. I mean, talked about that a couple of weeks ago, Dave, with, with Mississippi State and the success they had on the offensive line. I think that's true. I mean, you look at top offenses in college football. I mean, you know, UCF is always up there and they don't have a bunch of five-star offensive linemen. And granted, they don't play an SEC schedule. But, you know, even, even teams like Alabama didn't necessarily have lights out offenses and lights out offensive lines when they were building the program. Now, you know, now 10 years in, Saban's got offensive lines that are just chock full of five-star guys. But I think you can get away with it on offense um, much more than you can on defense. So that's that's the space where I'd really pay attention is, okay, who are we bringing on the defensive line? Who are we bringing in at linebacker? Those are really the guys that if you're bringing in blue chip, top-tier talent, those are the guys you want. And then, obviously, on the offensive side of the ball, I mean, you, you don't want to turn down a Percy Harvin if you've got him, but but those guys are pretty rare. But the guy who can take the ball to the house becomes really important. But I think sort of stocking up on guys in the 300 range is okay, um, as long as you get a bunch of them, because then you only need, you know, if you get three, four, five of them to hit, you've got a pretty effective offense. Yeah, and uh, there we go. You know, one uh, one you get a commitment from offensive guard Richard Leonard, uh, Richie Leonard, uh, last Friday, and then we get the news. Uh, the, of course, uh, Diave Hammond, 2019 offensive guard prospect, uh, will not make it on campus for the Gators. Uh, won't qualify academically uh, for the Gators. You know, he was a four-star uh, offensive uh, guard there uh, for for the 2019 class, of course. Uh, and leaves the 2019 class for four players that have already uh, left the class. Jalen Jones and Chris Steele already transferring out. And honestly, those are some pretty rare, odd instances in losing those two as early enrollees and, and the situations they found themselves in. Uh, then the one black and now uh, Diavi Hammond not qualifying academically. You know, Hammond was the, the highest rated offensive lineman uh, for the Gators 29, 2019 uh class that was pretty deep at the position but uh also a group where you know, we're still waiting on wardrobe wilson to attend florida after being denied his visa coming from the bahamas uh to florida and also as of this monday evening july 8th here still waiting on wide receivers rj henderson and deontay marks uh things look good for henderson uh if you if if we want to go by a tweet that he put out today uh we'll, we'll kind of see where, where that goes deontay marks you know, for, for henderson and marks keep hearing that these guys you know should be good to go by August uh, by the time fall camp comes around uh, that they'll be in there. But, you know, guys, the deflections happens, nothing new, but it is odd, you know, that it's happening this early before these guys even see the field. Hopefully it stays hold here that we don't get any more uh, counting those two guys I just mentioned, not really going to affect the 2019 season much at all. Uh, but eventually these players could have been needed. They could eventually, you know, do black, Still, his goal is to get back to Florida after attending JUCO uh, here. But you never know after going the JUCO route and and the, and the weird way in you know, Florida, you know, not a lot of success in trying to get JUCO guys in 
uh, to Florida here. So, you know, while not needed for 2019, still would have liked to see them on campus, in class, working out with Nick Savage, getting adjusted to a college program like Florida, getting the playbook, get developed without having to rush players, you know, into games before they're ready and, and be ready when their name is called. You know, so this could could affect depth down the road, and, and the Gators will get two counters back for, for Black and Hammond not qualifying. Now, I re- kind of refuse to panic about it uh, at this point in time. There, there's ways to make it up and, and hopefully time uh, to make it up. Transfer portal being one way uh, does put an importance on the rest of the class and the rest of the 2019 class. You know, They have to hit uh, on the field and also kind of, to me, really have to hit on this 2020 class. Uh, looking down the road, there, there's going to be you know, there's going to need to be many young contributors in 2020, 2021, uh, after I would, I, I would expect to be, to be a large class leaving uh, after this coming season. Uh, and our good friend Thomas Goldcamp uh, kind of put it best on Twitter today. Uh, he has the Gators at 78 scholarships uh, for this fall, and that's counting Noah Banks. So we don't know his status right now. And of course, not a huge, uh, not a huge issue for 2019, but, quote, UF is going to be young in 2020 and 2021. I think that's probably the only thing that has me concerned. Um, not a whole lot about this year. Just uh, like you said, 2020, 2021 will be a really, really young team. Um, 2020, the way that Felipe talks, you know, I mean, he'll be gone. So yeah. uh, we'll have Emery um, and that's OK. You know what I mean? I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I would probably feel a little more comfortable with a fifth year senior at quarterback in that position as opposed to a first year starting, you know, redshirt sophomore. Uh, but if that's the, if that's the cards that were dealt, uh, again, back to what I said about the DBs and, you know, with the safety situation with Trey Dean and um, John Huggins, I just trust the coaching staff. Uh, again, we can address it, transfer portal. We can coach guys up. We'll be young in 2020 and 2021, but I still don't think it's, it's at a point we should be panicking. Yeah, I think the issue isn't necessarily just the attrition we've already seen this year, though it's concerning when you've got four or five guys who aren't actually uh, who aren't going to suit up for the team who had who had signed out of that 25 man class. But there's also attrition from last year, and some of that is health related, some of that is discipline related, some of it's transfer related. But you got Randy Russell, Malik Langham, and uh, and Justin Watkins who aren't with the team. And if you take those seven guys. Their average national ranking was 235. Their average 24-7 ranking was 92.3. So basically, we're talking Alabama-level recruiting here in terms of those seven guys. I mean, 42nd ranked was Chris Steele. Watkins was 89th. DeWan Black, 151. Hammond, 242. Jalen Jones, 306. Malik Langham, 315. And Randy Russell, 501. So, I mean, if you put those guys on the 2020 recruiting class, we'd say that's a that's a hell of a finish. Yeah. <laughs> so, Definitely. you know, it, it's it's something that that is concerning. The, the other thing I think, and you, know, you guys have alluded to it, so this year, if you look at Lindy's, they've projected five of Florida starters are going to come from the 2015 signing class. Eight are going to come from 2016. Seven are going to come from 2017. Two are going to come from 2018. And none are going to come from 2019. So it says that the last couple of signing classes, we aren't necessarily getting a lot of guys who are coming in and making an instant impact. But it also says, I went back and looked, 91%, 19 of the guys who Lindy's projects as starters on Florida's offense and defense this year are going to be draft eligible after the season. Uh-huh. So if Florida goes 11-1 or 12-1 and or something like that, you can expect a pretty large large exodus and, and just off know, the top of the head here you know franks you got the what five receivers jefferson grimes cleveland hammond swain uh your final offensive maybe line even person. tony 
maybe even Tony if he hasn't. Yeah, if, if he has a crazy year, and then the two corners: Wilson, Henderson, David Reese, Zuniga, Grenard. I mean, I'm telling you, you it's yeah. I mean, we're talking about being young in 2020. That's 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 why because it does. You guys are just quickly name off the top of my head who may not be on the team next year. Well, and we talk all the time about about recruiting being about probability, right? That it's not that the three-star can't make it. It's that on a percentage basis, less three-stars make it than four-stars, less four-stars make it than five-stars. And so if you all of a sudden go from a 25-man class to a 20-man class, well, now you got to hit at a higher percentage in order to make, in order to compete. And, you know, again, you, you look at Florida's last three classes, they had 23 guys signed in 2017. They had 17 guys signed. If you take the three guys out who, who have already left the program. And then you had 21 guys signed this year, if you take away the four. So you're looking at an average of 20.3 signees per year um, with a national rank, right? Which would be around 14 and an SEC rank of six. They still have a 24-7 sports average of 90.2, so they're still very, very good players, but there just aren't a whole lot of them, right? I mean, they're basically down five per year over the last three years because of the the transition occurring under McIlwain and then the you know Mullen coming in his first year and now the second year class having some issues. So, you know, just from a numbers perspective and a body's perspective, it becomes concerning. I mean, if you look at Georgia, 2017, they had 25, 25 signees, 24 in 2018, 24 in 2019. So Georgia's going to have to replace a lot after this year too because they're sort of leveraged in that 2016 and 2017 class as well. But they already have three guys who are projected to start from the 2018 class and two guys who are projected to start from the 2019 class this year. So next year, when you say how many returning starters do you have, they're going to be in that 11 or 12 range as opposed to Florida. Where I mean, again, if Florida has a really good year this year, it could be that Florida is bringing back, you know, six returning starters or something because of all the guys who've had to leave. Scary proposition. I mean, I, I, I have done it in my head a little bit, you know, just listen to those names that I just named. But I mean, yeah, but this may, you know, if, you, if you're going to make a deep run, you know, just in, uh, I, I kind of hate to go back and give McElwain a whole lot of credit, but you know this team is built. You know this 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 year's team is built on a lot of his guys, and you know if, they, if Florida makes a deep run, it's going to be because of the class McElwain brought in and uh, the classes that he brought in that uh, have stayed. Uh, of course, the transfers Grimes and Jefferson. Uh, we give Mullen credit there, uh, and also developing these guys. But uh, maybe maybe we'll have to give McElwain a little bit more credit if, if this team goes on a deep run. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> We're just going to hope that Dan Mullen will develop Dan Mullen, guys. And yeah. we don't have to give Mac any credit. There we, we go. Give Mullen all the credit. We'll keep it going. We'll keep it going. A uh, couple more things before we wrap up here quickly. Uh, and uh, I put it out there, guys. I'm not a big numbers guy. I don't really care what numbers guys wear. But I know Gator Nation does care about it. Uh, Henderson, CJ Henderson, Kadarius Tony, uh, both of those guys get the number one, the coveted number one. And uh, – to me, it, it speaks a whole lot of trust uh, in, in these two guys. And like, and CJ Henderson proves proves it on the field. Proves it uh, that he's one of the nation's best cornerbacks. You know, Florida's top draft cor- uh, draft prospect, uh, wearing the number one. No surprise there. A little bit of a surprise uh, of Kadarius Tony getting it. And I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it. You know, and I, I think uh, if Mullen decides to give him this number one jersey, I think uh, he's shown enough to, uh, to to get it there. It show it does show to me that maybe he's he has done a lot in the, uh, in the winter 
conditioning and spring practice and now the, the workouts that they're going through now that Mullen trusts him. Because, uh, you know, Mullen, he's been he's been asked about this number one jersey and, and the players asking for it. And this guy, he says it's got to be ballers. It's guys, guys who can produce on the field. Uh, but also, I think, guys that he trusts in giving that number two uh, there. So, you know, Henderson and Tony uh, get the number ones. And that, uh, that, uh, that was probably the most uh, the biggest takeaway on, uh, on Twitter, even even bigger than the Brian Edwards story. <laughs> Yeah, same here. Not a big jersey numbers guy myself. Um, I mean, I'm ex- I mean, I guess I'm as excited as you guys. Uh, doesn't really matter as long as they go out there and play good on the field. Yep. Um, perform well, help us get wins. That's cool. You can wear the letter F. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm cool with it. As long as we get some wins. And I, I, you guys are so lame. I'm so excited about, about Tony wearing the one, man. Like you knew I was going to be excited. Well, about my bad. This. I forgot Kadarius Tony was your guy. So yeah, you knew go. I was going to be excited about this. <laughs> no, I, I, so, you know, you, you look, and one of the questions that I think a lot of people asked you last year is, why is Tony not on the field? Because okay. every time he touched the ball, it was an automatic 12 yards, and sometimes it was 30. And you're just like, every time he's on the field, the defense has to account for him. Why is he not out there as a decoy? Like, use the guy as a decoy. And I think what we found is later on in the year, especially I think I highlighted a couple times in the South Carolina game, where Tony was integral in the blocking game, and it freed him up for some of those reverses that they were able to run, one in particular against South Carolina that sort of put him down in the red zone that allowed Franks to run in that that game-winning touchdown. And, And so I think, the trust is probably more on the blocking side. That's why I'm. That's why I'm excited about the number one because I think it means that that Mullen thinks he's going to be on the field a lot. It's going to leave him out there to block. And if he's out there as a decoy, watch out because if he's out there 70, 80 percent of the plays, like he's going to have a huge year. I mean, and the thing is, maybe he's becoming a, a a true receiver. He's not just a, a utility guy, a guy you get it in his hands. Maybe he is. And you know, we saw toward the end of last year where he's. Maybe he can he can run a slant like the way he's supposed to beat the DB off of coverage and and get it you know it's it's more you know of becoming a, a true wide receiver and maybe that's where I maybe this number one kind of signifies that he's putting in the work he's putting in the, you know determination coming along and progressing as as being a true wide receiver instead of just uh, the, the playmaker utility guy. That part is definitely exciting. When I saw that Tony got the number one, I was like, okay. He's going to be utilized a lot more this year. And that part did get me excited. Um, I mean, as far as the number itself, yeah, I don't really care. But what it <laughs> indicates, yeah, I'm here for it. There we go. That, that's exactly the way I look at it, too. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap up, guys, a little bit of a somber note. Mr. Two Bits, George Edmondson, uh, of course, uh, passes away at 97. Uh, known as the Florida Gators, uh, known to us fans as Mr. Two Bits, uh, uh, passed away uh, July Second uh, last week, and they, uh, the University of Florida has put out celebration of life will be held in Tampa in August, and all friends of the Gators are invited to attend. Details will be announced at a later date. Survived by his wife Jane, as well as three children, three grandchildren, five great grandchildren. Uh, it all started in 1949 at Florida Field when Edmondson took uh, looked at the crowd around him. Um, they're playing the Citadel, and fans were booing the Gators. The fans you know, booing their own team out there. Uh, and George would not stand for it, jumped up, got the fans cheering, and so began the legend of Mr. Two Bits. Uh, for 60 years, Gator fans from all across the world became eternally grateful for the man who started every Gator home football game with the phrase two bits, four bits, six bits a dollar. All for the Gators stand up and holler. Uh, we all remember him in his, in, in his yellow shirt, uh, walking around the stadium in the orange and blue tie. Uh, you'd see him you know, before he retired. 
uh, in, um, you know, kind of toward the later years, he slowed down, but you would see him walk around the stadium. He'd be in different parts of the stadium uh, around the game uh, doing, doing the cheer. Uh, it was kind of, it, it is a somber, you know, I do miss it before every game. Uh, now that he's the one out there that Florida will bring in some celebrities, uh, some former athletes, some current athletes to kind of lead the way uh, in doing the two bits cheer. But uh, you know, it is, you know, what I said, it is a generic cheer, but it is more the, the tradition behind it. And, you know, college football is built on tradition and, uh, and one that uh, Edison started will always uh, live in Gator lore. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I haven't I never got to see Mr. Two Bits in person. Um, I've been more just used to seeing the celebrities do it and whatnot. But uh, anybody that has anything to do with just building the great, great, great Gator tradition. I'm here for it, man. And so if we, we lost him. He's a part of the family, man. He's a part of our family. So a big loss all the way around on the Gator Nation. No, it was a pretty cool story. You know, I never really realized what the backstory was about how that started. And so to hear about people booing the Florida program and him standing up, it made me think like we needed Mr. Two Bits on Twitter to, uh, <laughs> to calm things down a little bit. But, you know, it's funny. I took my daughter to a to Florida-Florida State game about three years ago. And, you know, one of the things she was really attracted to was that. And obviously it wasn't him doing the cheer, but but the actual cheer itself was one of the things she really enjoyed about the game. And and I think that's kind of also what it indicates is the, the youthful enthusiasm. The You know, we try to bring analysis and, and sometimes it can come off as cynical, I'm sure. But at our hearts, we're all Gator fans and it all started when we were kids and and, uh, you know. Again, it's 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 just uh, it's part of us, right? It's part of our life, and that, and that's really one of the cool things. And you know, I, I think it's a really, um, you know, it, it struck me that it was a really cool thing that all the Gator fans were sort of, um, you know, came together and were kind for a day when when the when the announcement came out. And I think that's really the legacy of Mr. Two Bits, and and uh, you know, a, a significant one. Absolutely. So he will be missed. He's been missed, uh, you know, ever since he retired. But uh, I mean, you know, I'm sure we we all can't wait to when uh, when they get their first home game uh, of the season. It's going to be a, a kind of a somber moment, uh, but a happy moment at the same time. when we're all doing two bits uh, there in our first home game uh, of the season there. So, all right, guys, uh, anything else to find? I can't, I can't thank you enough, man, for, for joining us here on the first time. We'll definitely get you back on. Uh, and all the uh, research and numbers you brought to the table. That's what Gators Breakdown is known for. And you fit right in. All right, thank you guys, man. I'm a longtime fan. Uh, I just love you guys' work. Um, thank you guys for the opportunity. And kind of to that same note that Will said, man, like I know that when we bring up the numbers, especially on an episode like today when we're talking about areas that the Gators can improve, it can come across as cynical. But um, at the end of the day, we are actually Gator fans. I know some people find that hard to believe sometimes, but we are Gator fans, man. We did go from four wins in 2017 to 10 wins in 2018 and a Peach Bowl win, a New Year's Six Bowl win. Um, for me, it's not so much a question of can we do better next year? And I think the same thing for you guys. It's a matter of how and what needs to change and what we need to improve on. That was the point of this episode. It wasn't that we don't think that we can. And we were just pointing out only flaws and that, oh, we're a terrible team. We're going to take a step back. But um, when you win 10 games, and you get a Peach Bowl win, a New Year's Six win, it does put you in a position where you can be a little more picky and you can be a more a little more detailed and start finding little things that we need to work on. Um, I really hate to use this phrase because Matt ran this into the ground. I don't want to bring up any McElwain stuff, but attention to detail. Like, we just really can't. <laughs> 
focus in on that. And just since we already got a lot of the big things down, the work ethics things, things like that, that Mullen brought to the table and Savage brought to the table when they came to Gainesville. Um, at this point, it's just little things. It's finishing when you get inside the 10 yard line. Um, it's, it's getting that push. It's when you, uh, Freddie Swain or whoever's back there returning punts, if we can get an extra five yards, we'll field it properly. And if we don't get blocking in the back penalties to set us back and start us behind on drive, just little things to where we can just keep progressing and getting better and getting to that level that all of Gator Nation wants us to be at. That's what we're here about, guys. So go Gators, man. Well said. Well said. Uh, Will, what you got coming up? Read reaction. Yeah, so I'll be writing a little bit about some of the numbers I brought up about Florida starters and how that compares to Georgia and what that looks like coming forward. Some of the guys we talked about who are going to be graduating. And then also I mentioned some of the film stuff I've been doing with Missouri and uh, and and uh, and Mississippi State and sort of the difference between those things and what we can look for for Grantham's defense. So those will probably be some things come up in the next couple of weeks. And then, you know, something always pops up with this team. There's, there's never a dull moment, so something else will come up, and I'm sure we'll write about that too. I keep saying it. When I picked that catchphrase, good Lord, I didn't know it was going to be so true. <laughs> Never a dull moment in a good way, though, from here on out. Yeah, there we go. From here on out. We've got about, <laughs> what, uh, 18 more days till the till, till, till fall camp starts. So uh, let's keep it there. Like I said, hey, man, put away the frying pans. Yeah, frying pan. Go away, go away. All right. SEC Media Days, like I said, coverage uh, next, uh, next Monday. Uh, I don't know if I'll do anything live or not. It'll be tough kind of see what we get from Dan Mullen and, and the players. Hasn't Have not announced the players yet that's going to be heading to SEC Media Days. But quickly, I guess I'll uh, I'll guess Franks, P. Ryan, and Zaniga. That's my three. So I think we'll hear from those three guys, uh, you know, uh, well, probably they're, they're, you know, maybe their last seasons at Florida, especially certain for Zaniga and P. Ryan. But uh, we'll see with Felipe Franks. That's kind of the three I see. Uh, should be announced sometime this week there. Uh, any, any guesses for you guys who the three will be? Uh, that sounds good to me. Maybe maybe Franks, P. Ryan, and Henderson, maybe, just to throw something different yeah, out there, a different CJ. combination, you know. But CJ's just not a really a talker, so I wasn't really sure. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good yeah, I, I might throw in David Reese or Tyree Cleveland. Those are some guys who are right. late in their careers who have really given their heart and soul to the program yeah. and might be somebody that Mullen decides to bring along. Only reason I won't say Reese, but I know it's been done before, uh, is he, he went last year. So, mm. but, but I mean, there have been players who's been there twice. So, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll see there. So, yep, that, that's, uh, that's what we got uh, cooking for uh, Gators Breakdown. Uh, next Monday will be uh, a show from uh, SEC. Uh, media days so uh for stefan you can find him on twitter at red top dread top and you can find will on twitter at will miles sec and his site read and reaction.com i'm the host of gators breakdown david waters you can find me on twitter at gator dave underscore sec guys and go out there thanks for listening to this episode of gators breakdown